Um, It's a joy to be back with you. So let's go ahead and jump in, grab your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. Very excited to continue this series through the book of Acts that we're right in the middle of right now. Uh, This morning, I just kind of set a direction of where we're headed. Uh, We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in just a few minutes as a church family. And then uh, near the end of our service, we've set aside a little bit of time. I'm going to be sharing something really, really important a challenge for us as a church family as we move forward uh, as a family of faith this morning. So that'll be near the end of our service. I can't wait to share that with you. So uh, if you don't mind, let me just have a word of prayer for you. And uh, I want to ask you just to pray for me this morning. We'll be able to communicate God's truth clearly and God would use this in the life of our church and our own lives that we don't just walk out of here in a few minutes the same way we came in. Uh, Let me remind you that as we walk through this book of Acts. We are not just walking through church history. It's a vision and what we're praying God to do in us. What I'm praying God does in me, what I'm praying God does in you, that we would be a desperately dependent people. And if we were real honest, we don't really know what that means, right? That, that scares us a little bit. Flying back from Africa, I had so much on my mind. I said, Lord, do whatever it takes to make us uncomfortable. You ever prayed that? Say, oh, we don't like, we wouldn't even imagine praying that. Lord, whatever, do whatever it takes to make us uncomfortable so that we'll be dependent. So we're asking God, make us a desperately dependent people, a fervently loving people, a sacrificially devoted people, radically repentant, boldly proclaiming, globally impacting, joy-filled church that's unleashed with the gospel. So why don't you join me for just a quick word of prayer. Let me pray for you and you pray for me this morning that God would do this in our lives, okay? Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, God, we cry out to you this morning. And God, here we are assembled as your people, and Lord, we, God, we just recognize apart from you, we can do nothing. God, I pray as an act of your grace, Lord, that you would make us more aware of our dependence, God, that we would so cling to you and know the joy that is dependence on Christ and your Spirit. Lord, thank you that we are never left alone. We're never left our own resources. God, we are empowered in the presence and the abiding life of the very Spirit of God within us. God, we need you this morning. Walk us through this word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. We're going to be in verse 15 in just a second of Acts as we continue through chapter 1. But let me uh, humor me just a minute. I want to tell you a quick incident of something that happened to me while I was in Africa, okay? I was over there with my son. We were with the Esther School. Wayne and Allison Costley that are out of our church lead that school there that's ministering to children and the community there. And man, we were out in the bush of Africa in Zambia. And this time last Sunday, actually, this time last Sunday, we decided we were going to get in our vehicles and we were going to go out and drive around the community. And part of the uh, vision of the school is to serve the community and meet the community and get to know the community and love those people, not just their children, but the community. So we're out driving around, and again, we're in the bush of Africa, and it's rainy season, and there are these massive potholes like you've never seen before. So as we're driving through this road, we find ourselves right in the middle of a massive pothole. Go ahead and put that picture up on the screen. There we are. We're in trouble. Now, I wasn't driving the car, all right? That was Wayne. You need to know that. But you can tell, we hit a little ditch, and the more we hit our gas, the deeper we dug, and we're going down into this mud out in the bush of Africa. We are stuck. 
Now, one thing we began to notice is the longer we stayed out there, and by the way, we were out there over four hours trying to get out of the ditch, the more of the community that came out. And they wanted to watch the white guys get stuck out in the mud. They were just kind of laughing, you know, pointing feet like that, and that's what was going on. And we're there for four hours. Now, I'm going to be honest, in the midst of that, I was not thinking, oh, God, I see how this perfectly fits into your plan. I know exactly what you're doing here. I didn't have a real good perspective. And I'll tell you another thing, we simply did not know what to do. We couldn't call AAA, right? You're in the bush of Africa. There ain't no way to get out. There's no tow truck coming out there to get you. So as we continue to sit there again, I mean, three hours, four hours, the the sun is starting to dip a little bit, starting to get dark. My worst fear in the world is snakes. I'm in the bush of Africa, stuck, and for all I know, there's just snakes everywhere just watching me, waiting to bite my head off, right? They're just everywhere. Lord, you got to do something here. So here's what happened. We listened, and there was some chatter that began to happen among the community, the people who were gathered around. Go ahead to the next picture. So the chatter was this. Uh, the cows are coming. That's what was said. Different people began to say, the cows are coming. The cows are coming. And I thought, well, so? What are the cows going to do? And they said, listen, Mr. So-and-so has these cows, and he can hook them up to your tractor, which wasn't working, and we'll hook the tractor up to the truck, and maybe we can get the thing out of the ditch. Last thing on my mind was to pray for cows. I'll just be honest. So the community comes out, we hook up the tractor, and we hook up six head of bovine to the tractor. They pull the tractor, the tractor pulls the truck, and look what happened. Ready? Go ahead and take the next picture. Boom, they finally pull the thing right out of the mud and we're set free, exactly as the community thought it would happen if you just trusted cow power instead of horsepower, right? Now, what's the point of that little story? The point of that little story is, in the midst of it, we had no idea. My perspective was not on, God, what are you doing here? And I really was beginning to get a little bit nervous because we had no way to get the vehicle out. And when all was said and done, we looked around. Put that last picture up one more time. We looked around and everything we had intended to do today was accomplished because the entire community came out to see the white guys stuck in the mud. And believe it or not, despite us, God used this crazy incident to begin to build relationships. And Wayne and Allison and the school now have greater relationships with the community that came out to watch these guys stuck in the mud. At the end, we could look at that, and here's what we could say. God, your plan is right on schedule. Now, Acts chapter 1. That's a setup, if you will, for exactly what's going on in Acts 15 through 24. Because as we read these verses together, and I trust you're reading through your reading plan. You've been walking through this this week. There's a situation going on with the early church that they're kind of scratching their head. And they're saying, God, was all of this that happened really part of your plan? And the disciples are in that desperate situation of saying, all right, and we're not really sure what to do next. So let's begin reading in verse 15 with all of that in mind. The Bible says this, At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons who were gathered there, and he said, now let me stop right there very quickly, At this time, what time? What was the context of what we're about to read? Well, let me remind you, we're 
40 plus days since the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus has given a very clear call and command to these 120 disciples to say, look, I've done the heavy lifting, I've died, I've risen again, I'm alive. Your job is simply this, go tell. Go tell. And oh, by the way, as you're my witnesses, it might cost you your life. And then Jesus floated away. (laughs) The ascension. And he said, but I'm sending my spirit. The spirit's going to empower you. Don't raise a finger toward the great commission until the spirit of God empowers you. So they're waiting for the spirit of God. And all of that is happening. But there's one other thing going on. Another dynamic in the minds of the disciples that sometimes we forget about. And here it is. Less, somewhere around 40 days prior to the situation, one of their very own, one of the trusted disciples had betrayed Jesus, had betrayed every one of them, had sold out Jesus, and then gone out and committed suicide. And that's no small thing in the life of a church or in the life of a group of people. Judas and that whole issue has not quite been resolved yet. They're not seeing it from God's perspective. I imagine some of them, let's be honest, they're going to be scratching their head and they're saying, all right, God, was that part of your plan? How does all that fit into this mission? And what are we supposed to do now? I mean, Judas is gone. Peter wisely that's why the scripture says verse 15 stood up in the midst of the brothers and sisters the brethren and here's what he says verse 16 brethren and I love this Peter Peter does hear what leaders do Peter with all of his faults stands up and he directs them back to the truth of God's word he says brethren brothers and sisters listen the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Peter is going to do exactly what good leaders do, and I'm only going to give you two life principles today out of this passage. Here's your first one. The life principle is this. God's Word gives us God's perspective To rightly understand what's happening around us. Now that's huge for you and me. Don't pass that. Let's say this again. God's word. Peter says the scripture. In other words. I know you guys are a little bit confused. I know some of you still don't understand. How does all this fit in? Judas is gone. It was ugly. You trusted him. And now God's word is going to give God's perspective. So we can rightly understand the situation. And that's exactly what Peter does in the midst of the disciples. He says, guys, this is exactly as Scripture foretold it was going to happen. See, there's an incredible practical application for you and me in our daily lives here. And that's this. In every situation we face, whether we're like the early disciples here, we're out in the bush of Africa, things are not happening the way we expected them to, things are coming our way that are unexpected, there are, there are two options. There is man's perspective on the situation, and there's always God's perspective on the situation. 
our natural bent is always to see things from our own limited, fallen, self-centered perspective. And let me make this very applicable to all of us. If we see our current situations only through our own lenses of our own flesh and our own limited understanding, here's what's going to happen. You'll always fall into fear. You'll always fall into suspicion. You'll fall into grumbling or complaining or withdrawal or denial or whatever the case is. Our perspective is always a limited perspective. And Peter steps into this situation so wisely and he says, hold on guys. You don't need your best understanding. You don't need your emotional way of looking at it because you guys are really unsettled right now. What does God say about this situation? And in verse 16, Peter does that. He says, the scripture, speaking of what had been written, the Old Testament at that time, he calls them back to truth. Good leaders, good moms, good dads, good life group guides, good study group teachers, those that are making disciples. We always call people back to the truth, what was written, what has God said. He said, the scripture. That which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. Perfect definition there of what it means when we say the inspiration of Scripture. When we hold our Bibles, we have a record of what was spoken by God through the human authors. It's the very Word of God. And Peter says, listen, we're not going to lean into our own understanding here. We're going to say, okay, God, what do you say about this situation? Peter explains in verse 16, he says this was no surprise to God, no surprise to Jesus. And really, in effect, what Peter is saying to the disciples who are still unnerved about this very real situation, Peter, in effect, is saying, listen, God's plan and God's program is right on schedule. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that sometimes. I need to be reminded in my own limited perspective and my own selfish perspective, even though I don't understand maybe all that's going on around me and I really don't know what to do next, I need to bury myself in Scripture to have God's perspective and hear again, hey, it's right according to my plan. Trust me. Trust me. So that's what Peter does here. Verse 17, he goes on, he says, For he, speaking of Judas, was counted among us, and received his share in this ministry. Peter doesn't deny the reality that it was a very hurtful thing. One of our very own was a turncoat and betrayed us. Doesn't try to hide the reality. He doesn't deny reality. He says, but let us see this reality from God's perspective. Verse 18, he goes on. He says, now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. And falling headlong, it's a little bit graphic here if you've been reading this. And falling headlong, he, Judas, burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. What? Verse 19, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem. So that even in their own language, that field where all this happened was called Hakadalma, that is the field of blood. What in the world is this about? Peter goes into some graphic detail about what happened to Judas. Again, Scripture never denies reality. It just frames reality so we'll see it in the right perspective, from God's perspective. Peter says, here's what happened to Judas. 
You guys know Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus? Somewhere around the crucifixion or after the crucifixion, we don't know exactly when it happened, he became guilty of what he, has done, what he had done. Matthew 27 says, Judas said, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. And he brought the money that he had sold out Judas, those 30 pieces of silver, and he came to the temple and he cast them into the temple to the religious leaders. And he was so overcome with remorse. Matthew 27 says, he went away and hanged himself. And Acts adds a little bit to it. Evidently, he didn't even do that very well. Either the tree broke or the rope broke or something happened and his body fell and burst open. It was a gory mess and that's the picture of the life of Judas. Now, Peter wants the disciples there to know in this current situation that none of that was a surprise to God. None of that was a surprise to Jesus. John 13, 18, Jesus said, He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus, every moment knew there was one in his midst that was going to betray him. Wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Jesus quotes Psalm 41 and says, There is one who is going to betray me. John 17, Jesus refers to Judas as the son of perdition, meaning the son whose destiny is the state of eternal punishment. Then John 13, after washing the feet of his disciples, and both, oh, by the way, you want a picture of humility? You realize Jesus washed Judas' feet the night before he was crucified. Knowing it was the very guy that was going to betray him. And you say, I can't forgive that guy. I can't love that brother. Are you kidding me? Jesus washes the feet of the one who would betray him. And in doing that, in doing that, John 13 says, After Jesus had given him the morsel of bread, Satan then entered into Judas. And Jesus looked at him and said, Whatever you do or what you do, go and do quickly. Jesus was not surprised at all about what happened. In verse 20, for it was written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. Let another man take his office. In other words, Peter stands up and says, look, hundreds of years ago through the psalmist and the Holy Spirit, everything that transpired was perfectly predicted. God's plan is right on schedule. The disciples need to hear that. You and I need to hear that. We as believers, we don't live apart from reality or in some sub-reality. We live in reality. But we see it from God's perspective, not our own limited perspective. Peter calls them to the truth to see it from God's perspective. Now, it's not necessarily the point of Acts 1. I'm going to give you one other application point that's, I think, very helpful for us this morning. But I want to chase a little aside because you have to ask the question a little bit this morning. Okay, I read this passage about, about Judas, and I've got to ask, okay, was Judas ever a believer at all? I mean, you've got to at least ask that question in your mind. Here's a dude that walked with the Son of God for three and a half years. Here's a guy that taught truth. Here's a guy that cast out demons. Here's a guy that was a part of miracles to, to some degree. Here's a guy that was trusted among his other disciples. Judas, you realize, was the treasurer, by the way. He kept everybody's money, so obviously they trusted him. In John 13, when Jesus says, Okay, listen, one of you guys is going to betray me. Nobody stood up and said, Well, I know who it is. It's that funny-looking guy, Judas, with the tattoo. That's who it is. I know who it is. Nobody pointed to Judas. 
So somehow this trusted guy who said all the right things, did all the right things, Jesus the entire time in John 13 when he's washing their feet, Peter says, oh no, don't wash my feet. And Jesus says, well listen, you're already clean, but I'm going to wash you as a picture of your clean, that you're clean, you're forgiven. But then he says, but not all of you are clean. In other words, there's one in the midst who's never been forgiven, never truly come to know me, making reference to Judas. Everybody zone in with me here for just a minute. To me, that is a sobering reality. That Judas could walk in the presence of the Son of God and be exposed to more truth and more clarity and more divine revelation than any of us ever will be, and yet he never come to know Jesus Christ. Judas is a living illustration of what Jesus taught in Matthew 7 when Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Many will say, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles? And Jesus said, and I will turn to them and declare, I never knew you. Depart from me. So the sobering reality for us church folk is not that we can ever know Christ and lose him because he never lets us go, but we can be walking in immense self-deception. And we can deceive ourselves, and we can deceive everybody around us, but we never deceive Christ. It's it's debated exactly what happened to Judas, humanly speaking. If you read through the Gospels, and we went through this when we walked through Mark a few years ago, maybe some of you remember, but it appears that Judas had jumped on the Jesus bandwagon because all the talk about the Messiah, he was ready to follow a Messiah who was going to bring in the kingdom. He was ready to jump on the bandwagon for all the glory of the Messiah who was going to stamp out the Romans and who was going to establish the kingdom. And Judas in his mind had to have, okay, I'm going to walk with this guy. I'm going to be his right hand. When he brings in the kingdom, I'm going to be right there with him. And then somewhere along Jesus' ministry, Jesus began to say very peculiar things like this. Oh, by the way, I'm going to die on a cross. And it seems as you follow along in the Gospels, Judas had to begin to think, wait a minute, I'm here for the glory. I'm not here for a cross. And then by the end of the ministry of Jesus, the night before he was crucified, Jesus extends the morsel to him one last time of friendship. And the night before he was crucified, it says Satan then entered into him. Judas was done with Jesus at that point. And here's the kicker. Watch this. This is painfully practical, I think, to some of you in this room. I believe, as best I can tell from Scripture, Judas's issue was this. Judas was simply, I'm sorry, Jesus was simply not the Jesus Judas wanted him to be. Jesus, I signed up for this. I signed up for the glory. I didn't sign up for the cross. 
So the sobering reality for some of us in this room this morning is, is my faith and is my eternal trust and is in my confidence not in a Jesus of my imagination, but the Jesus of Scripture, the God-man, the Son of God, come to take away the sins of the world, who is Lord and Master and life and joy and peace and strength. Is it that Jesus that my confidence is in? Or what's this? A Jesus that maybe in time I might, not, I might find out that's not really the Jesus I signed up for. That's a sobering reality. So Peter continues on here with the early church. And then I'll just share the final few verses and then we'll move to the Lord's table in just a moment. So it goes on and he says, okay guys, I, I need you to understand that everything that transpired with Judas, we know from the scriptures, it's all according to God's plan. You can see it from God's perspective. So he continues on, verse 21, he says, Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time with the Lord Jesus, went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day he was taken up, one of these must become a witness of his resurrection. In other words, Peter says, okay, here's what we have to do. We've got to appoint a new disciple. We've got to appoint a new apostle. It's got to be somebody that walked with Jesus from the beginning all the way back to the baptism of John. It's got to be somebody that was here the whole time, all the way through the ascension. They saw it all. Peter says, listen, this is so critical in the midst of probably a little bit of confusion, in the midst of a little bit of misunderstanding. Peter says, listen, the mission must continue. We've got to continue the mission. Verse 23 says, so they put forward two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, uh, not to be confused with Barabbas, but Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That's a hard statement. Verse 26, and they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Now, it's a little bit funny here. It's almost like they said, okay, appoint a couple guys, then we're going to pray about it, and then we're going to roll the dice and see what happens. (laughs) That's not exactly what's going on. At the end, it says they cast lots. Lots was a practice that had come through all the Old Testament. And we hear that and we say, that's kind of weird. Why in the world would you cast lots? It was this exercise that uh, whoever the lot fell to or whoever it fell to their feet would identify God's will, if you will. It was an Old Testament practice of determining God's will. It was used by Aaron. It was used by the priests. It was used in 1 Chronicles 24. It was used by Nehemiah. And you study it in the Old Testament, we think it's kind of just casting to chance and some weird thing. But those whose heart was right in the Old Testament, it was ultimately an act of humility saying, God, we're going to trust you that you can direct and you can lead through this. Proverbs 16, 11 says, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So the disciples are trusting that God Jesus, you were with us for three and a half years. You're not with us now. The Spirit of God has not come. We're trusting that you'll use the same practice you did before to reveal your will. And by the way, the casting of lots is never used again in Scripture. It was never used while Jesus was walking on the earth. It's not some weird thing that we would do today because the Spirit of God is present with us. But it was something they used during that time. So, second life truth is this for you and me. God's mission advances as God's people seek his will together. 
God's mission advances. See, this could have been a huge stumbling block for the advancement of the church. This could have been a huge stumbling block for the day of Pentecost that's about to happen. They, there's some confusion there. There's some bitterness there. There's some uncertainty there. And they're not sure what to do. They had God's perspective. And now together as a church, 120, they're seeking God's will together. Four things that they did. This is so helpful for you and I as we seek God's will together. Number one, they sought scripture. It began, ended with Scripture. God, what do you say about this? The Scripture, Psalm 109, they quoted, Let his days be few, let another take his office. From Scripture they knew, you got to appoint a new disciple, a new apostle. Much of what we wrestle with sometimes, and we're saying we're not sure what God's will is, it's not that we don't know what God's will is. Often it's crystal clear in Scripture, it's just that we're not real happy about what he's saying. So scripture was clear. Now they weren't really sure how to do it. They weren't really sure how to carry it out. So then they sought wise counsel among the church, among one another. Acts one twenty three. So they put forward two men. They, meaning the church, spoke into this together. They sought the wise counsel of one another. And let me just encourage you. That's what Christian community is in many ways. If you're part of this church and you're not in a life group or you're not connected, that means you are trying to make life decisions. You're trying to seek God's will in isolation from other brothers and sisters. It's not supposed to happen that way. You're, you're, man, I dream of the day when you're able to go to your life group and people that love you and you're able to say, man, I'm wrestling with this and I'm struggling with this. Brothers and sisters, I need you to pray with me. Can we seek God's will together? That's what they do here. They were dependent and they were dependent together. I want that for you. I want that for us. So they had the scripture, they had wise counsel, and then they prayed. Acts one twenty four, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men. Stop right there. One thing that you see throughout the book of Acts is this desperation of God's people to call out to the Lord in prayer. Here in verse 24 is the first passage we have that tells us the content of their praying. They had walked with Jesus for three and a half years and now with him having ascended, they are calling out to his name in prayer. You Lord. Now watch this next phrase. Who know the hearts of all men. They're getting ready to appoint the next apostle. It's important to recognize we, don't, we can't see into people's hearts. Remember Judas. They're saying, Lord, you know people's hearts. The phrase here means truly the heart knower. Jesus alone is the heart knower. And they say, Lord, you've got to lead us in this. So they had scripture. They sought wise counsel. They had fervent prayer to the one who knows men's hearts. And then finally, in faith, they trusted and they acted. Verse 26. And he was added to the eleven. For you and me as disciples of Christ, this is a pattern. Not a punch list, but a pattern of, Lord, okay, I want to. I want to align my heart and my will with your will in every area of life. And that's exactly what the early church does here. They needed God's perspective. They needed to know what to do next. And you see a pattern of how they did that together in community. Some people say, well, was it the right decision? I mean, we don't know what happened to Matthias. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened to Matthias. 
Church history tells us this, that Matthias proceeded from Jerusalem and Matthias began to minister in what would today be the area of Georgia, not, not Atlanta, <laughs> Georgia around the Black Sea, a former Soviet republic. And because of his faith and because of his fervent preaching, he was one of the disciples who were stoned to death. He gave his life for the advancement of the ministry of the gospel. So I want to ask you this morning, before we take the Lord's Supper and before we wrestle with some of these things that maybe God's pricked your heart this morning, I just want to ask you to bow your head there for just a moment. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I want you to just have a moment of reflection there. And then Paul's going to come and lead us. But let me just ask you a couple questions. First question is this, this morning for you. Are you seeing your situation in life right now from your own perspective? Man, are you seeking God's perspective? Secondly, are you following a Jesus of your own imagination? Or the Jesus of Scripture, the, the Son of God? And then thirdly, how are you making decisions in your life? In isolation? Apart from the Word? Apart from prayer? beautiful pattern in scripture how we follow and we walk in desperate dependence on the Lord so take just a moment right there and then Paul's going to come and he's going to lead us into time taking the Lord's Supper together